IT businesses in Sacramento, California. From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT. With your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 161 of the Killing It! Killing It! Podcast. Boy, you guys are right in unison on that one. You think hey, we I, practice. I, <laughs> I, I do have to say that that my, my newest assistant, who's been with me a couple months, edits these and says, you know what you guys don't do? Every freaking week, you have a note in there that says, promote this on iTunes and like it and share it and subscribe to it and write a review. And you never say that. That's true. So everybody write us a review. Say <laughs> say nice things on uh, on your favorite podcatcher and rate us. That's what matters. I'm doing a home improvement project, which I, I am distinctly not qualified for. So I watch a lot of YouTube videos on how to do X and you can learn to do anything out there. And what I'm constantly shamed by is how it, every single video they start and they end by going, you know, help me out, like, subscribe, do the thing. And I'm always like, I'm like, this guy's teaching me how to connect an electrical DFCI outlet, and he's a way better business promoter than me. Can I just laugh and go as a, as a guy who does a lot of that stuff? God, the likes and subscribes matter. <laughs> like, like, really, like, everybody, they really matter. If you like something on YouTube, like YouTube or podcast, like the likes and subscribes, they really matter. So mine, at, at the end, when you put up the ads, I just have these things flashing, like, subscribe. Yes, please. Come up. But let's, let's have a little fun here before we get into the real topics. Would you rather explore the depths of the ocean or outer space? I'm going to say outer space, mostly because even though I'm afraid of heights, uh, I I think in outer space, no matter how bad it gets, I'm still going to be in outer space. And I think that's awesome. And, you know, I grew up wanting to be, you know, like all the other astronauts. Ocean, I don't know. That's just more of the same wetness. And then you die. I mean, I, w I think I'm going to go with the same logic because admittedly, I can't eliminate one because you will die horrific deaths either way if, right. if something goes wrong. So I think I'm going to go with space because that's the, the bit that I was more into as a kid. Well, see, I, I will say um, both of them are equally unknown and uncontrollable. But in a world defined by watching movies as a kid, um, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea absolutely terrified me. And, and 2001 A Space Odyssey was just very, very interesting. Now, you grow up a little bit in that world. And what I will also say is, even before it got to the weird part, there's probably not a scarier movie in the last 30 years than The Abyss. Like, Come on, man. That stuff's actually down there, and you're not in charge. <laughs> That's true. That's I, one do, of these I do like the fact that National Geographic goes into both of these places, and uh, the, there's actually better pictures at the bottom of the ocean. Uh -huh. So, side note, I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of the worst and most pretentious movies in the history of filmdom. Ooh, Correct. Now there's a bold topic, and I'm going to pivot us away. Ignite is back with their 2022 MSP Summit. Hear what's new at Ignite from the senior leadership team, learn from an open discussion with a panel of your peers, choose from a variety of sessions with experts, including Tiffany Bova, Chief Growth Evangelist at Salesforce. The event is virtual May 12th, 2022. Win prizes, network with peers, all in a half-day online event. Register for free right at ignite.com slash MSP Radio. 
Excellent. So our first topic today is about robots. Yay, we all love robots. robots. And here's some actual actual good news coming out of the robot world, and that is robots in hospitals. And I, I do have to say, as a personal note, I saw robots in hospitals 30 years ago, but it was like this thing the size of a car, and they had painted tape on the floor so that this thing could move from one point to another. It was slow and it didn't know people existed and they just basically had to unplug it and throw it away uh, in short order. Today, we have a robot called Moxie down in Fredericksburg uh, near Dave, south of Dave. Um, and Moxie is a six foot tall robot that actually kind of, you know, it's one of these friendly looking, it's got somewhat of a face and its job is to take things back and forth and to not have to use nurses for truly mundane uh, activities. And I, I think that this, the reason I wanted to cover this topic is I think it's the beginning of the actual um, world in which robots do good things for us. They interact with us. They know that we exist and they're not taking away people's jobs. They're making their jobs more tolerable. I think it's, a vision of what the future can be. It's an intriguing argument for automation, right? Like, so the, the, the idea that I like about this implementation is that we're going to take away the, the manual portion of the labor and allow, you know, particularly nurses to focus on the part that actually used is their skill, the ability to do diagnostics, the ability to do bedside, you know, to be a bedside liaison versus the part which is they have legs and arms and can move things down the hall. Right? So right. I, I, I definitely like like that portion of it. It's it's interesting to me how they're trying to make it human where, you know, and human looking and human appearance where that isn't required for the job that was done a little you know, box robot that runs up and down the hallway might actually be more efficient at that. Uh, and I will be interested to see if there ends up being data about improvement or impact on actual healthcare providing, like the actual healthcare outcomes by that difference versus just a little gopher robot that the same kind that brings potentially brings us a burrito, right? The And that that's an intriguing choice because it does actually add a lot of complexity to the robot, which may not be necessary. And I'll be interested to see how they test that all out. See, and this is the thing, necessary is a question of maturing technology. Capable is a question of emerging technology, right? Can it do a thing? Yes, later on, we consider the question of UI UX, right? Uh, is the user enjoying the interaction with this capability? That is not day one in developing any innovative new technology. But eventually, even those of us who grew up in a command line interface will admit that UI UX actually matters and whether or not the people that are not technical enjoy using this thing, enjoy using it, right? Like that matters a ton. Now, just to put a really shining uh, like juxtaposition on this topic, uh, also right now, uh, the city of Shanghai, China is undergoing 
literal lockdowns. Like you are not allowed to go outside under penalty of that dude over there with an automatic weapon, right? Uh, also to enhance the coverage of the surveillance during this lockdown. You guys remember a couple of years ago when we talked about the dog robots that were used for security and surveillance? Those things are actually on the streets of Shanghai right now. Now, I get the functional objective. I understand the effectiveness of the coverage. But if you bring that hellhound of metal and snarling technology into my world, I don't feel cuddly. Now, what I will, what I will say for absolute certain, I feel exactly the same way about nurses that I do about teachers. God bless nurses, right? If you've not had the need to experience the professional service called nursing, then congratulations for you. But if you have, you will understand that medical services all come wrapped in the cloak of a human who makes you feel better about it, right? Doctors generally not notorious for making you feel better about stuff. Nurses, they got to do all the hard stuff, all the dirty stuff, and do it with a human touch. Anything that can take the weight off of those individuals and let them focus on the human parts instead of just the blasé, repetitive carpal tunnel parts. Hey, cool. Let's bring those robots in and give them a smiley face. Right. Well, you know, I, I really the reason I think this is such an important piece in the evolution of where we're going is because we've had the robots that follow you around and carry your stuff. Right. We've had the robots that theoretically will someday bring me a burrito, but that hasn't actually happened yet. Uh, we have the robots that are the, the little cars that drive autonomously and, and don't, you know, they have to have their own set of elevators because they will squish you. Um, this robot is intended to have a, a face because it's intended to reduce the resistance to the robot, right? N nurses are happy to see, oh, thank goodness, somebody is going to do some of the work and I don't have to do all this repetitive, boring work. And there's a massive shortage. And so it's reducing, it's reducing the stress of both the nurses and the patients. Uh, so I think we're going to see more of this. And I think, I think the article said there were something like 60 of these deployed across the United States. So um, I think this is the direction we're going. We've tried different robots. And, you know, same as, as with building a car, there are different robots for different jobs. Well, so, I'd, I'd uh, be remiss if I didn't say that, you, that that is one way to solve the problem. It is not the only way to solve the problem. Uh, infusing personality and relationness to a device is very possible. And I'm going to point to uh, R2-D2. Like, right. fa fa very famous robot that does not look like a human, yet is known for having a personality, it is, has a impression and an emotional response from humans by intentional choice. Yes, it's an actor. Like I get, like there is an actor element to this. I get all of that, but I'm saying, but I wanted to observe that the physical form is not required to get that emotional response. The intentional choices are. That's the lesson you can take away from this. But would you not love R two D two as much if it didn't have C three PO to do a little bit of interpretation and say, "Don't insult me." The answer is, I think so, because and I think we have data points that show that. Uh, in terms of like, and I'm geeking out for slightly, is his appearance in The Mandalorian, right? He showed up, Luke and R2 show up without C-3PO. That's the emotional response that the fans had to that, didn't require that. And so there, there's that element of the, you, you can create that intention 
in technology just by deliberate choice? Well, you can, but context matters, and most of these storylines are not as simple as insert sense of humor here, which is what most of us techies think is called comedy, right? Uh, but let's move on to a second topic here, guys, and surprisingly related to our entry question, in the depths of the ocean outside of beautiful, pristine Hawaii, the cyber criminals are coming for us. Now, what the story we're going to link to here in the short show notes talks about a recent report about an international crime ring that was trying to attack and penetrate the systems of the underseas cable that not only brings data and everything else to and from Hawaii, but actually is responsible for 95% of intercontinental internet data that flows on submarine internet cables. Now, the point of the article begins by saying, by the way, a nod here real quick to effective journalism, because one of the early paragraphs in the story goes out of its way to say, uh, no law enforcement agencies believe that any arrest took place, no damage or disruption occurred, and no immediate threat was found. Okay, now let's go back to discussing the, oh my God, the sky is falling elements of this story, because they make a point later on that says, like a lot of other infrastructure, including our telecommunications backbone, including our electrical grid, notoriously terrible physical and cybersecurity systems in place. So, gentlemen, um, venturing back to the depths of the ocean, <laughs> what say you about the cyber criminals getting submarines? Well, so some piece of this is it was just a matter of time. Like almost everything else on the internet, uh, I mean, this was this is clearly way before the internet, hundred and some years before the internet. Uh, people did not think about security when they created these things originally. But I would argue it would be horrible if these things did not have redundancy. Like, you know, when you drop something across the bottom of the ocean where you know there are volcanoes at the bottom of the ocean. You need to have a backup. So, you know, it would be horrible if they could disrupt uh, all the transmissions. But there's more than one line going to Hawaii. There's more than one line going to every continent. There, there are thousands of these things. So I, I don't know if it's as disruptive as they want to make it sound. On the other hand, we've all seen what happens when somebody does the wrong update to the DNS database. And you go through 12 hours of half the Internet not working the way it's supposed to. This, so I'm, I'm about halfway through reading uh, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, which is the book by the New York Times cybersecurity reporter Nicole Perlroth. Uh, and I would encourage anybody in this space to read it. It is a, it's a fascinating read as it dives into sort of the cyber arms race, particularly at the nation state level. What was uh, this brought up the, the bits of and the NSA did this, you know, a decade ago. Oh, and by the way, this is also how they were surveilling uh, Google because internally Google wasn't encrypting data in transit in its own data centers. It was only doing it at the perimeter. And thus, all you had to do was put a listening device inside there and they could hoover up all the data. This instantly brought to, to mind the, the chapters that I've been reading were about these particular incidents a decade ago. Of course, the criminals have decided this is, a, this is a worthwhile endeavor because the closer they can get to the data, the better. And it, it really is the, we have to really rethink uh, our 
approach to the way data is transmitted, data is handled, we have to assume, I mean, it's so cliche to say zero trust, but you have to assume at all times it's going to get out. It's not only going to get out, or it's, but also the you cannot ever have it moving in a way that isn't protected. Uh, and physical defense has always been the most important bit of all of this. Physical, we've always said, like, hey, if I get access to the machine, I've got access to the entire thing. Well, all I need is physical access to the cables. And the ocean's a big place, right? Makes makes a right. lot of sense to me to say, like, we can go you, find... You can't secure the entire cable for 2,500 miles. Right, and so, so this is the logical next step, and it all comes down to the profitability of the bad guys. They are looking for more efficient ways to, to do this. It's our job as the defenders, but also culturally, to impose such costs to that. I make it difficult to do that by making it not worthwhile. If all the data is encrypted across the line, it is not possible, it doesn't make sense to do that, then it is not worth their investment. But the moment we, we give space, they're going to take advantage of it. Well, and, and every one of us who lives in, and works in the world of cybersecurity has been taught the distinctions of data at rest, data in motion, data in use, right? We understand that these things are uh, the three states of being for our information, and we are responsible for all three of them. Uh, dot, dot, dot. One of those is much more expensive and challenging than the other two. Uh, application layer security, we, that exists out there. Uh, data storage security inside your data center, that exists and we hope that some people apply some professional discipline to its use. Data in motion is intensely difficult to secure and as a result, our industry has a gnarly habit for saying, well, I'm not the one who owns the cables. It's not my responsibility. Somebody else's fault. Therefore, you can't fire me or find me because I wasn't the one who exposed your secrets. That's not good enough. Right? As an industry, everybody needs to take a great big breath, pull up their big boy or girl pants as are appropriate, and admit the easy parts have been done. And now it is time to do things that are difficult and expensive and a shared responsibility, even though that makes it much more complicated. It, it's time. We have to figure this out. It is no longer acceptable to stick our heads in the collective sand at the bottom of the ocean and say, not my responsibility. I'm not going to do that because I'm sure this is so mission critical. Of course, somebody has already paid attention to it. No, they haven't. I had a conversation a while back in the pre-pandemic days with a guy who was responsible for the data security perimeter. And he made very clear to say perimeter at various institutions that are responsible for the infrastructure of the electrical grid. And, and, and he was telling me he's not responsible for data at rest and he is not responsible for data in transit and he was not responsible for dot, 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 right? Like there were a lot of things that he put as caveats on his responsibility. And he scared the ever-living daylights out of me, a person who has read and been inside of many of these systems for 20-odd years. Um, it, it's not secure. It is absolutely positively not yet done, and we have a collective responsibility to make sure that that's not the end state because, dude, it, you don't have to turn off 
these systems for it to be a successful cyber attack. I always wonder whether or not I should be, a, I wonder if I should be scared of people that make that many caveats or respect people that make that many caveats <laughs> because, and, or maybe a little bit of both, because obviously you want, you want organizations to take responsibility, but if they're constantly telling you what they don't do, well, the bigger the organization, the more likely it is for people to say, this is my stuff. All other <laughs> stuff is not my stuff, not right? My like I, not my I get, I get bo bonused and incentivized on my stuff. Uh, final note, just before we switch topics, and that is going back once again to our, our opening somewhat uh, entertaining question. Um, there is an analogy between the bottom of the ocean and outer space, right? That. Uh, if somebody can take out just a couple of random satellites, blow up a couple of, of areas of uh, rotation within the uh, satellite rings, and take out three or four random big pipes at the bottom of the ocean, you can do a lot of damage. And yeah, there might be redundancy and we're gonna wire around it and all of that, but all you need to do is create enough confusion to let something bad happen, right? So uh, I don't wanna be depressing, but you know, uh, we do need to put this on the list of things we check from time to time. And again, both will epically kill you. But I'm going to move us into topic three. The, this is an article coming out of Insider. Uh, and it's one I freely admit I read this and I was like, oh, the channel people are going to come for this one. The headline, uh, the direct-to-consumer model is failing to generate profits and founders are rushing to partner with big box retailers like Target after years of shunning them. And the basic gist of the story, which we've linked to in the show notes, is that for many of the beloved direct-to-consumer, cut-out-the-middlemen uh, businesses, uh, they are now realizing that they are not quite getting to the point that they wanted to, uh, and they are now looking at whether or not they're going to have to figure out other ways to go to market. Uh, these are, you know, things like men's skin care brand Hawthorne, children's clothing brand Primary. Uh, you know, these are, uh, you know, darlings like Warby Parker, Allbirds, Casper that are now potentially running up against the edges of their growth. Gents, this, it's now being covered in, in Insider that they're going looking at adding big box retailers. What was your reaction to this? Well, the, the good news is what goes around comes around. Uh, this is the never ending uh, fine tuning of markets. And, you know, people have to try what they have to try. The good news is, I think for us, is that I really liked some of the big boxes that have gone away. You know, uh, uh, Toys R Us, to be honest, is my favorite. But, you know, some of these some of these markets do need to return. There's a point at which you say, look, I, I know I'm only going to buy shoes. Let me go to the biggest shoe store in the history of the world, and I will come out of there with the right shoes. Um, in terms of our own market, I think the analogies will pop out of the woodwork. Um, there is always a tendency to say, I will make more money if I go direct. But in our market, that has to be attached to service. You can't go big and only sell licenses with zero service, or you will, you will need to somehow create a layer of uh, somebody else providing that service for you. I mean, that's what Microsoft has done. They, they only have a partner program sufficient enough so that somebody will be selling their stuff, right? Um, if you just go on the internet and say, I'm gonna click around until I find something that'll give me a document, well, you're probably gonna end up on Google. 
so Microsoft has got to artificially create a, a way for resellers to make money. Otherwise, they cease to exist. So, you know, don't take the analogy too far into our space. Well, and, and so just to, to borrow a, 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 an admittedly stretched metaphor here, I, there, there's a movie quote that's quite famous out there that says, you know, stories about happy marriages are only stories that are not yet done. Right. Uh, and and the, the, the admittedly sarcastic point that they're making is uh, more germane to our topic here. Any declaration of victory in the business world is a temporary conclusion at best. There is no such thing as absolute victory. And anybody who says direct sales is absolutely the only way to go because look at my data points or going through the indirect channel is absolutely positively required for absolutely every business in every form. You will never disintermediate me, go away. Um, dot, 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 look at my data points from the most recent quarter and don't pay attention to the fact that this stuff always ebbs and flows, right? I, the three of us are people who voluntarily do business in a large part in the indirect channels of the technology industry. But I am notorious for standing on stages and saying there is no such thing as channel religion. There is no absolute truth to the fact that indirect routes to market are and must always be the most effective way to reach your end user. I have always been and continue to be an advocate for routes to market that wind up eventually looking very complicated because there is a time and a place where serving that customer direct is the very best way to do it. And there are other scenarios in which serving it indirect is also the only and most effective way to do it. And if you are a business with appetites to get to all of the end users, then you need to use all of those routes to market. Carl, you said there's layers to this thing, and I'm going to abuse my, my <laughs> linguistics background here and say there's a different layer that all of us need to eventually admit. If you want to tell me that direct-to-consumer is the most cost-effective and scalable way to build your business, then I'm going to say a different layer to you. Layer, L-A-E-R, land, adopt expand, renew. If you tell me that direct sales, direct to consumers is the best model, then by definition, you are only speaking of the transaction. You are not speaking of the engagement and the adoption and the customer lifetime value because none of those things can mathematically scale in a direct way. Well, that and you've also hit the perfect point there by talking about scale, because I, I wanted to relate this to size, right? So, so for these organizations, there is a drive to you must continue to hit certain growth numbers. Obviously, profitability is an issue, too, for some of these, but you must also hit growth numbers to achieve your goals. The law of big numbers tells me that that gets harder and harder the bigger you get, and thus, the larger you get, the more you're going to need multi-channel solutions to get that. And I mean multi-channel in the sense of some will be direct, some will be indirect, some will be through all of the various sales mechanisms that I go through. That's not to say that any one of those cannot be incredibly successful at a smaller level. And so that's where, where ultimately like you can start out being pure play on one thing and be very good at it 
and at some point will hit the law of big numbers and determine that you cannot continue doing the one thing forever without looking at going more things. Now, those more things may be complementary, they may be new, they may be very different. So I didn't, what I la ra laughed about this article was the, I didn't want every channel person in the world going, see, you gotta go indirect. That's, <laughs> it's like, well, you have to go something else when you hit the law of big numbers, whatever that means for you. <laughs> well, remember also that everything that we're talking about is on a conveyor belt. It's moving from point A to point B. So you have the, the big company and then some little company changes something and disrupts a little something, right? Innovator's dilemma. And then that changes the market. And then you like, when you respond to that, you're no longer in the market of two years ago, you're in the market of today or tomorrow, right? And so this that's why I say it's constantly expanding and contracting, moving and, and, and morphing. Um, and so, you know, part of it is, you have to stay tuned enough to figure out what do I think tomorrow's going to look like? Where do I think tomorrow is going to get me what I need? And, you know, one of the things we often forget about is there is no entrepreneurship without invention. If all you are doing is moving dollars or widgets around, there's nothing being invented, right? So people can change the market because they either invent a new way of buying, a new way of selling, a new way of servicing, right? There, there's, again, many, many layers to this, but it's not entrepreneurship if you're just moving the same widgets around, right? It's, it's entrepreneurship when you change something or invent something. Exactly, Carl. And what, what you also say is true. Competition must always be understood in the context of time today versus tomorrow. And that means by definition that somebody's gonna try something different and it might work and it might not work. It is never a finished story. You always have to understand that there is a time and a place when direct wins and there's a different season where it is much more effective to go through channels. But uh, believe me guys, it, there are times when it is more, more effective to go direct. And we have to admit, and compete with those things. <laughs> well, there should be plenty of nuggets here for people. <laughs> yes, after all of the, the potentially negative little comments, it's nice to add to, to end on a positive note. And that will do it for episode 161 of the Killing It <laughs> Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.